0: Greetings, people of Earth. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of It's Lit, But Is It Funny, the podcast where we sprinkle the plastic imitation flies of comedy onto the mashed potato of literature. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the mathematical mystery series of comic thrillers published by Farago Books. My guest today is the writer Imran Ahmad, author of Unimagined, subtitled A Muslim Boy Meets the West, and whose cover carries plaudits from Sue Townsend, John Pienaar, Andrew Collins, Sue Cook and Yasmin Alibi-Brown. Under its US title of The Perfect Gentleman, it was an opera number one pick and one of the books of the year for The Guardian, The Independent, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Belfast Telegraph. Wow. Welcome, Imran. So what time is it in Kuala Lumpur?
1: Oh, hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It is 9.16 p.m. Uh,
0: uh, what's the, what's what's the weather like there at the moment?
1: Well, the weather is always the same. You see, we don't have seasons. <laughs> oh, yeah. There. So I'm guessing, I mean, it's either raining or it isn't. And (laughs) it can be cloudy or sunny, but it's always about the same temperature. During the day, about 32 degrees. And in the evening, uh, 22 to 24 centigrade. It's not raining at the moment. It's quite spectacular when it rains, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: remember we we, we actually went to uh, Malaysia back in... 2004 maybe our son was on a gap year doing something with trapping bats in the jungle and we actually went out to Taman, Tamanagara the, the, the central jungle and okay. I've, never seen, I've never seen rain like it, it was astounding
1: <laughs> When I first came to Malaysia, which was now 11 years ago um, it used to rain at precisely 4pm and it would be absolutely a torrential downpour and then it would be over by 4.30. It was just like it was like clockwork. Now, I haven't noticed that in recent years. I, I don't know if, what that means, whether that's indicative of some kind of climate change or whether mm. that was just something that was an oddity at the time when I first came, but it really would bucket down. And it, so it doesn't drizzle in Malaysia. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it rains. The tap is turned on, and then the tap yep. is turned off. Yeah. <laughs> Great.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, we will talk more later about uh, Imran and his work, but we're going to begin by looking at the book that he's chosen to discuss, which is Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is actually our second foray into the world of Douglas Adams, having looked at Last Chance to See with Andy Miller in episode nine. And we did talk a bit then about himself, obviously, and Hitchhiker a little bit. And I do recommend you have listen as well to that one when you finish with this one. But it's it's worth giving uh, Hitchhiker its own episode because there is so much to enjoy and and, and delight there.
1: You could probably so, get a PhD a oh, hitchhiker.
0: easily. Easily, <laughs> I'm I'm Easy. sure people have all I'm sure the social. Have. Uh, yes, yeah. I bet
1: they- <laughs> so, so, so what made me choose what made you choose this? Well, you asked me <laughs> you asked me to think of a funny book. Yeah. And I just thought back, and it was the first one that came into my mind that there had to mm. be a, a funny book that I read. And it was so amazingly funny, and the whole series, of course, but so it was the first one that came into my mind in that context and then it, all the memories came flooding back of my experiences with the hitchhiker phenomenon and the emotions and then the music and everything it all came flooding back so yeah i was this was the this was the title you mm-hmm. i actually read it or maybe i should go back let me let me back up to my experience with hitchhiker so this began we all know it began as a radio series which according to an in, uh a little essay i found by douglas adams was probably the only person who could fully remember and recall and understand the whole interaction between all the different variations of Hitchhiker <laughs> um, He's no longer with us of course, but he I, I, I read this the lesser he wrote. So the radio series began it says in March 1978. So at that time I was doing O levels and I didn't habitually listen to radio 4. Hmm. I'd more likely watch Dallas on the television. But I didn't. Uh, I didn't have any awareness of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at that time. I first became aware of it in with the BBC television series, which this essay told, tells me started in January 1981, which was the six months right. before A level. So that's when I became aware All right. of the series, and that was six episodes, and it was brilliant and so funny, just extraordinary. And I remember it being repeated because. I remember it being repeated after A-levels that very summer, so about six months later, seven months later, because I remember watching it again with the A-levels behind me, but before the results came in. So that's a different story. Then I recall uh, my friend Milton at university talking about it, and he he had recorded it. But the radio series off the um, off the radio, and he had cassette tapes. Uh, I don't know if all of your uh, listeners are aware or know what cassette tapes are. But I'll assume <laughs> most of. The I, the I, I think you can assume
0: they're probably on on the older side.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I should think so. Um, yeah. Well, but, but, I mean, we, we welcome <laughs> listeners of all ages. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, then I remember reading the books, all the books between my undergraduate degree and when I started my PhD so that was 1985 and I do remember just going from one book to the next and I remember I can actually see myself carrying I always had a, a paperback with me I remember sitting in the waiting room of a hospital when my mother was was admitted for something and I was there I can I can see myself reading the, one of the Hitchhiker's books so I read them I read them from the first book to the last book in a fairly short period of time they were literally uh, page turners unput down mm. and I, I read I read a lot of them and and I, I mean there's they, they are, there's so many dimensions to them then in 1987 uh, this autumn of 1987 when I started at Unilever there was a period of a couple of weeks two three weeks when I was actually going into Unilever house every day on the train to Waterloo and that train took 42 minutes and in those days <laughs> If I took if I took the 730 train, this is absolutely extraordinary. If I took the 730 a.m. train, I would have four seats to myself, which is completely unimaginable today. Good Lord. (laughs) But there was enough time for me to sit down, settle down, put my briefcase down, and then religiously extract my Walkman device. I'll assume your (laughs) readers know what they are, from its soft cover and put in and then unfold the headset, the, the headphones untangle the headphones stick those in and put in the next tape stick that in and start and i would be able to hear a whole episode of the radio series uh, just before the train was trundling into waterloo and i'd have enough time to pack it all up again and i remember walking to from waterloo to unilever house and then the music would be playing incessantly in my head (laughs) (laughs) and 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 even now as i've come to revise this phenomenon the music's been playing in my head again So that and that was the radio series. Now, Douglas Adams, in this essay, he explains starting with the radio series. Then uh, the first book came out. Then there was a TV series. Then LP. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. So (laughs) then he brought out he brought out an audio version, which was not the radio series. No, it was an audio version because it had to be different from the radio series because of copyright content issues. So they did. There's a couple of LPs. And it was like the radio series, but it wasn't quite. And then there were more books. And then there's that American film, which I remember watching a few years ago, because I remember after Dent saying, I'm British, I know how to cue. I remember that. But I remember nothing else about the film. And when I glanced at it, I glanced at the trailer just a few days ago, as so I was revising for this, I just didn't want to watch it, because I just watched, or re-watched, the six episodes of the BBC series, and that's about that's three hours altogether, and that was fantastic. And I just didn't want to watch a shortened, Americanized version of that, mm. so I didn't. <laughs> so I,
0: think- I, mean, I I must admit, I I, I I did sit down and watch it again because I, I, I for some reason I've actually got the DVD of it, I, I, which means I've seen it three times now: once in the cinema, and twice on DVD. <laughs> you went to the cinema. Yeah, I'm Latin for punishment. It,
1: it's not it's just not good it,
0: it's kind no, of I know a... I saw the
1: trailer I saw it, the trailer it's... and I just thought no it's not having just watched the BBC TV series then I I, I just the movie seemed unwatchable it, it's almost um, as if the,
0: the people involved in making it were speaking a foreign were, thought it was a foreign language or something and they, they just don't understand how the bits fit together
1: yes absolutely because there's, there's a certain thing that happens when um, the same thing happened with the doctor who movie it was Ooh, it yeah. follows a certain formula and it's very americanized yeah. and, and it's a it's very formulaic and it, so when a brief something british is made into something american in movie form it loses a lot and i just had to finish the, the story and then eventually actually the, the 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 radio series was released and i actually do have that but apparently it was modified slightly to take care of some copyright issues mm. Oh, and then it was also extended way beyond the original. The original yes. two <laughs> series has gone on to many more. And I remember buying the radio series on, on CD from Amazon in 2009, when I was about to go on a US speaking tour, driving around the US 15,000 miles. And I thought this would be good mm. to listen to in the car. So I loaded it all onto my iPod and then... I'm here in Malaysia years later, and I was just thinking, where is that? where are those CDs? Oh, those CDs are in a box, packed in a box, where my stuff is stored back in London. But then I was in bed in the middle of the night. I thought, wait a minute, though. I did load it onto my iPod, didn't I? I loaded it onto my iPod. I got up in the middle of the night, and I found my very old iPod. And I, and I looked at it, and it was all there. Wow. So, so I actually do have it here. Anyway, that's the entire, to, well, to my knowledge... Oh, no, well, there's a stage production. There yeah, was a stage production no, no. at university, first year, although I didn't actually go to see it because I wasn't into hitchhikers at that point. But in the, my first semester at university, um, there was a stage production as well. But
0: I mean, there, okay. there were there were two, in, they, they did two in London. There was one at the ICA where oh, the entire audience were all sort of a hovercraft thing. And then they, the, the problem with that was it was, it was, it was supposed to be really good, but you, I think, they only managed to seat about 80 people. So right. There's no way. And there were people queuing around the block to, to get in, and they had to turn them away. So they decided to redo it in a bigger venue at the Finsbury Rainbow. Is it Finsbury Rainbow? I think it was that. And I actually went to see that one. It was terrible.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. is it the one where the tractor is just a very small model tractor? Very, very small.
0: I don't, that. I, don't, be... no, I don't remember much of it, but it, it was it was disappointing. Well, the track for the bulldozer, sorry, the
1: bulldozer.
0: Yeah, they might well have been, but uh, it it wasn't it wasn't a great success.
1: So anyway, uh, reading so reading this essay by Douglas Adams, he he makes it clear that there is absolutely no consistency between any of these versions.
0: <laughs> no, that,
1: that, that that's the extraordinary thing about
0: if we sort of, if we sort of look at look at. Te- writing technique, if you like. Douglas Adams is plotting. He, he basically has a number of set pieces that can be reassembled in or virtually any order and with a different sort of logic leading from one to the next.
1: That's right. And and some things are very much the same and, and others are not. I'll, I'll give you an example, which I, I just realized in my revision. So so to prepare for this podcast, I, I only reread the, the, the first book, The Hitchhiker's Got. to the galaxy i reread that book i haven't had a time to reread the others although they were fantastic but i watched the whole of the the bbc television series so the television series includes them going to the restaurant at the end of the universe Mm. and then on into the the whole b arc business as well but the first book uh ends with them just about to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe and then the there's a, some interesting differences there. In the book, they're leaving Magaruthia in their own spaceship, and they pick up Marvin. The, the Marvin is with them. Marvin the android yeah. is with them. Mm. So they all go together in their own spaceship to the restaurant at the end of the universe, uh, willingly, I mean, deliberately, to yeah. actually eat. But in the TV series... They got blown up by those cops who were chasing Zaphod, and they woke up at the restaurant in the end of, at the end of the universe. And Marvin was left behind on Magarothia, although he later shows up parking cars. Yeah, and, and, and that, that <laughs> is
0: the same as that's that's the same as the radio series. But then again, the radio series radio series differs in that they end up when they leave the restaurant at the end of the universe. They end up in the Hagumenon. Ship which uh, is full of it's these sort of shifting creatures, rather than and, and not disaster area, which only comes in oh. in the book and the TV series, and also I think the LP. Right, so did, and in the
1: TV series they teleport from the disaster area ship and and then land up on is it Earth pre Earth? Yes, 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 that's right. Earth would be up with the management consultants. Yeah. Mm. As I say, you you could definitely get a PhD out of this, uh, uh, and that's that's without even beginning to talk about the philosophy and Mm. everything else, the physics, the astronomy. One of the things I appreciate about Douglas Adams is that he did understand how big the universe is, because very often... Especially in television science fiction, in the latter half of the latter part of the 20th century, there's just no understanding at all of the the distances between planets, between solar systems, and then between galaxies. And and you have when you have people doing interstellar travel using rockets, you know that the people writing this had absolutely no understanding. So Douglas Adams understood you know like like, had a glimmering of an understanding of the magnitude of the size of the galaxy and beyond that the size of the universe and so came up with these wonderful things like the infinite improbability drive you know not rocket motors not rocket engines but something vastly different and extraordinary because that's the only way we'll ever travel to another star system yeah i I
0: think one of that's that's a lot of his genius is, is is the ideas that he comes up with for explaining things or or, or when, when he sort of when he he often deliberately paints himself into a corner, like when when Arthur and Ford get thrown out of the Vogon ship right at the beginning, and he has to find a way out of that. and that sets him off thinking of 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 the whole infinite and probability drive and all that sort of stuff. And I think that is that is his genius of coming up with those weird ideas. That- it, it absolutely is genius,
1: because the odds, of yeah. course of being the odds of being rescued, from that situation are well not impossible but highly improbable yeah which is what yeah. he says nothing is actually impossible just highly improbable especially in, in quantum mechanics as well in, mm. in quantum mechanics quantum physics if you have a you, you, you say you have an iron bar it's evenly it's an even temperature across its entire length right mm. now it's not it's not impossible that Suddenly, all the quanta at one end, all the quanta of energy could jump to one end and it could become really hot at one end and really cold at the other. That's not impossible. It's just highly improbable. And that's the, uh, the genius, as you say, that he he, uh, he applies. Oh, another thing I have to say is it was from Douglas Adams. First, I learned that you, you, you don't die instantly in space. So I grew up thinking that the moment you're exposed to space, you die immediately, instantly. Mm. However, he says, well, in, in that episode, it was like 30 seconds. You've got 30 seconds. I thought that was a bit of a stretch, actually. But um <laughs> but I've subsequently watched the new the new version of Battlestar Galactica and so on. And I've come to learn that, you know, 15 seconds is you could you probably you could probably have, hold together for 15 seconds or so. Space doesn't kill you instantly. Mm. It does take a few seconds, so you can act, you can you can jump from one airlock to another through the vacuum in between, if you if you as long as you travel straight. It it it, it did, he did open up other possibilities. Mm.
0: I think he's also very good on technology. That's how technology fails and how it's misused and, and all that sort of thing. I mean, I, I one of my favourite ones is oh, just, I, I can try. Let's see if I can find the passage here. It's when he's talking about... Yeah, it's uh, a loud clatter of gunk music flooded through the heart of Gold Cabin as Zaphod searched the sub-ether radio wave bands for news of himself. The machine was rather difficult to operate. For years, radios had been operated by means of pressing buttons and turning dials. Then as the technology became more sophisticated, the controls were made touch sensitive. You merely had to brush the panels with your fingers. Now, all you had to do was wave your hand in the general direction of the components and hope. It saved a lot of muscular expenditure, of course, but meant that you had to sit infuriatingly still if you wanted to keep listening to the same program.
1: I but remember reading. I just reading love
0: that. that one. I love that.
1: That's right. Technology um, loses, it loses the purpose for which you, you sort of designed it as it gets too good.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it, it is the, how, how things evolve badly. <laughs>
1: I just love that. One else. The, the other, then the other thing about purpose in the um, this isn't in the in the first book, but when the management consultants, the B-Art people, chose leaves as their mm. currency on the on the pre-earth, as it were, they chose leaves as their currency, but realised there was an inflation problem because leaves were so readily available on trees, so they decided to engage in a massive deforestation program to reduce the supply of leaves. Yeah. And that is just, that's just so brilliant. So yeah, insightful.
0: It, it's entirely logical <laughs> in, in one, from one point of view.
1: If, you, yeah, if you're operating within certain parameters, and it's yeah. really a reflection on what we are doing to our planet today. Mm. Uh, we're operating within fixed parameters and not opening up to what we're actually doing. So we have economic models based on unlimited growth, unlimited infinite infinite growth. The whole stock market is based on stock market investment is based on unlimited growth. But nobody asked the Earth if she would tolerate unlimited growth. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I I wish Douglas Adams would were, was around today to talk about cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin. And oh,
1: all that sort of stuff. He'd be he'd be on top of climate so, change, crypt, yeah, cryptocurrencies, everything. Yeah. It's so tragic. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. 49, I think he was. Yeah, 49. Yeah. That's, Just. That's, that's no age. Yeah. Such a I loss. I if you talk a bit about his writing style because he, he he did used to work and rework every every sentence, every paragraph over and over again until every he, got, until he got the rhythm right.
1: Yes, I mean, it's the way he constructs his sentences. Mm. It's, it's very precise in order to be funny. Yeah. I remember so this is going slightly off track but I remember I think it was one of the dirt. sorry whose detective agency Dirk Gently Dirk Gently it was Dirk Gently Mm -hmm. so someone said someone said there's a horse in the bathroom something like that so somebody goes to have a look and so Douglas Adams describes in precise detail the the bathroom the tiling the colours everything and then he says there was also a horse in it (laughs) (laughs) remember that from I remember that yeah. from reading 35 years ago. <laughs> that's that's his style. It's so it's just yeah. genius.
0: It, it, I mean, there's there's the classic one about we talk about the Vogon constructor fleet who hang in the air in the, exactly this the, the, the way that oh the ships bricks don't. The, where is it? The ships hang in, in the fact, sky the in much the same way that bricks don't.
1: Yeah, that, that's that is right.
0: it. Perfect.
1: It is. It's, oh and that's why the americanization of this does not work it's so peculiarly mm. british and and, and then a the subset of british it's just it's just magical yeah
0: and and the, the, i mean the the rhythm was uh, my my favorite bit with when i was i was reading through this i was sort of looking looking for this sort of thing and and my favorite bit i came came across uh, was with deep thought and oh, yeah. the way he the way deep thought speaks and that is so Wonderfully portentous and and and, and the, the, the whole rhythm of it is wonderful. I'll, I'll just read read this bit. There's the two computer programmers, Fook and Lunkwill, have come to, to speak to Deep Thought. Another worried look passed between the two programmers. Lunkwill cleared his throat. There must be some mistake, he said. Are you not a greater computer than the milliard gargantu brain at Maximegalon, which can count all the atoms in the star in a millisecond? The milliard gargantu brain, said Deep Thought with unconcealed contempt. A mere abacus, mention it not. And are you not, said Fook leaning anxiously forward, a greater analyst than the Google-plexed Star-Thinker in the seventh galaxy of light and ingenuity, which can calculate the trajectory of every single dust particle throughout a five-week dangarabad beta sand blizzard? A five-week sand blizzard, said Deep Thought haughtily. You ask this of me, who have contemplated the very vectors of the atoms in the Big Bang itself? Well, lest me not with this pocket calculator stuff. It's, it's a gloriously, it's, it is rhythmic, and it's...
1: Oh, it, it's, 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 it's poetic, and... Yeah, it is poetic. And, I, I, and I, how?
0: I, 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 it's just struck me that I think it's sort of someone who was sat listening to a lot of Old Testament stuff at school, maybe, and it, it, it's got a sort of biblical feel to it, almost, though.
1: Oh, well, definitely, and there is a whole biblical kind of... Ethos running through Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm. certainly the visual images, Slarty Bartfast, and so on. Genesis is an, an alternative version of Genesis, is effectively. Um,
0: I mean, how, how did you navigate all that as a, as, a, as a Muslim?
1: Well, so I was a bit more, I was a bit more narrow-minded in those days because I was very scared. <laughs> so I was still, I was still, I was still very much wasn't free of my childhood programming. I'm exactly the kind of person that Douglas Adams would want to reach with his free thought mm. and courage. So I thought that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when I first encountered it, the television series 1980 was 1981, was extremely blasphemous <laughs> but very funny. So it was yeah. a kind of a guilty, guilty pleasure. I'm watching it, it's really funny. I'll acknowledge that. It's really intelligent and it is making some very pertinent points, but I'm not going to. Uh, I don't want to address those points it's blasphemous but it is very funny you see the trouble is um your intellect when you've been programmed in a certain way but you still have an intellect right and your intellect is still trying to function and trying to reach through the programming layers one hopes that it hasn't been killed completely and can eventually be set free so so yes I thought it was it, it was a guilty pleasure in 1981 mm. but now uh, now that i'm I would like to think free of most of my uh, childhood constraints and by the way these are basically consistent through all Abrahamic religions so all Abrahamic religions would find hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy blasphemous yeah because it's giving a completely alternative to the idea that a singular all mighty powerful entity created everything you know, in a relatively short space of time as well but it's important to be able to break free of those constraints and just to be able to think Freely and uh, without being afraid. Mm. And, I mean, now, I, now he's just he has courage and vision, and I appreciate it very much.
0: Mm. The other thing I wanted to, to talk about was was his memorable characters because, and particularly, um, I mean Zaphod Brox and Marvin, obviously, are just two
1: extraordinary characters that he's created. They are. They have such clearly defined personalities They're vivid sorry vivid personalities. Even the Marvin, his energy, you can feel his <laughs> low energy. And yeah. Zaphod just chaos. Oh, Zaphod is a kind of, well, I, uh, uh, I don't know if I'll offend anyone with this. It just occurred to me. He's a kind of exuberant Boris Johnson type. Because you I'm know, in the book.
0: That's, I was i was just about to find a, a passage that, oh, c- c- yeah. Can I just read this bit? <laughs>
1: Can I just said because he, he became yeah, president ahead. of the galaxy. He decided yeah. to become president of the galaxy, and he became president of the galaxy. Boris Johnson decided he was going to be prime minister, and he became prime minister.
0: Yeah. I, can, can I just re- read this bit? Because one of the major difficulties Trillian experienced in her relationship with Zaphod was learning to distinguish between him pretending to be stupid just to get people off their guard, pretending to be stupid because he couldn't be bothered to think, and wanted someone else to do it for him, Pretending to be outrageously stupid to hide the fact that he didn't, actually didn't understand what was going on, and really being genuinely stupid. Yes, you know, that so that is every I, every populist politician.
1: Yeah, I, well, yes, absolutely, and I mean, I can tell you without a, sh- I can tell you that Boris Johnson is not stupid. He is very sharp. He's very bright. I actually met him off the plane uh, when he came to Kuala Lumpur as Mayor of London. I actually was gre- greeted him off the plane. Oh <laughs> right. And he's, uh, he's a very sharp individual, but he also needs to be a man of the people. So we must never, never, never assume that he's, he is stupid because he definitely is not. And he is, I mean, extraordinarily successful because he, he had a vision and he achieved it. But I'm going to steer away from those comparisons now. <laughs> I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to stray into areas where which might upset some people. Or...
0: I think the only thing about characters again... The, I, I think Douglas Adams has a problem with, with women. The female characters are are not well-drawn, such as Stereotype. they Stereotype. Yeah, oh, I mean, um, Trillian is, okay, she is uh, described as being very intelligent, but she doesn't really have any motivation or agency, uh, or at least n- not until Mostly Harmless, which is sort of book five in the series. Right. And, and Fenchurch from So Long and Thanks to All the Fish is, is basically classic uh, manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> and oh, right, yes. Because she's the sort of damaged woman that, that, that he comes across, who is just there to basically let Douglas Adams write a love story. And so I, I, it, 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 it's, it's the thing that always, always slightly bothers me about... And, and it, it may just be that it's... That was... The time when a lot of comic writing, the, the media that Douglas Adams was in was very male dominated. And he wrote mainly male characters.
1: So, I, 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 I wouldn't presume to analyze. I, I, I do think uh, from that, from that uh, time period, it was difficult to just think, think of a woman as a person rather than primarily a woman. That's, that's, that seemed to be how it always was, that when a female character is introduced in any in any film, program, or whatever, she was primarily a woman, and then she was whatever she was. Even Uhura in Star Trek had to be yeah. there because she had to be there as a woman. And actually, she didn't get a lot of bandwidth no. in the, in generally in the adventures that was needed. And that wasn't actually Gene Roddenberry's fault. I mean, that was the American TV executives. They pushed back so much. Yeah. He did the best he could. He really did the best he could and pushed hard, as hard as he could. But the American executives were so racist in those days. They made Gerry yeah. Anderson remake episodes of Thunderbirds, which had black people in. He had to remake them with really? white really? puppets. Yes!
0: I, I, I never knew that. He managed, to
1: he managed to gradually introduce them through Captain Scarlet. Yeah. But the American TV execs just did not like, As the, I hate this word, coloured, but that's the word that was used. colored characters. and some have to be recast as white white puppets. So the only colored characters I recall in Thunderbirds were there's an Egyptian taxi driver when they had that episode with I think it's the episode with the pyramids mm. and, 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 and someone and maybe another character in 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 North Africa when when they had that episode, but I can't otherwise I cannot recall any as it were colored and I don't I hate that word, but that was really the term applied. In Thunderbirds. Mm. Anyway, this was this, was, this is <laughs> not so far removed from that time. Mm, I, right. I, find, I find it therefore quite interesting that I feel that in in the film which I saw the trailer for, I have a feeling that after, um saw so Ford Prefect. Ford Prefect is cast as black.
0: Yes, yes. Purely
1: yeah. for that purpose, just to introduce some mm. <clears throat> diversity. <laughs> I, I of course, that's completely. It changes the ethos of him completely from this eccentric yeah. Englishman with the satchels.
0: Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, it is, um, it is a bit of that. Interestingly, I'd, have you ever seen the illustrated *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*?
1: Um, I haven't actually held it in my hand.
0: It's this weird, <laughs> the weird, weird vanity project that uh, that they did, where they basically hired a bunch of actors to sort of pose. Or an illustrated version of the um, of the book, and Zephord Beeblebrox is black in that one, I think.
1: Okay.
0: But uh, so obviously that was Douglas Adams. I mean, presumably, given the extent to which it was a vanity project, presumably that was Douglas Adams' direction on that.
1: Well, was it though? What year was that? I mean, was that while he was still
0: alive? He was while he's still alive. It? Yeah. Oh, okay. And I think it. I think it was. Part of a tool uh, is one of one of the many tools he was using to try and get the film produced.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So uh, I, I, I may
1: have got that wrong. Right, the the film didn't I, come out until after. No, that was after the, his death.
0: Past, yes, right. Yeah, I think we probably need to move on to um, talk a little bit about you. And uh, so, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is what I said about your first book, Unimagined, subsequently retitled The Perfect Gentleman. In my opinion, one of the most important books I've read in the last couple of years. It's a quietly subversive masterpiece of militant moderation, and everyone should read it. And Looking back, at it, I'm not quite sure about that militant moderation bit, because it's a sort of joke that plays on the idea of the default setting of Islam being militant extremism, which is not entirely helpful. But I stand by the rest of it. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful book.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And of course, uh, the renaming was The Americans. They renamed it from Unimagined, which I actually like. Because it it was, was that how life turned out, everything about life, how it turned out, was unimagined. And the Mm. Americans said that, oh, it's a bit vague. Unimagined is a very vague title. People won't know what it's about. And also, they didn't like something beginning with you. They said, (laughs) because it was too far down the alphabet, which I don't know know quite how that worked. um,
0: Rename
1: it so (laughs) So the Americans' marketing team, renamed it The Perfect Gentleman, only because there is one thread in the book. There's one story, there's one stream or thread in the book, which is about me trying to be the perfect gentleman in order to be like uh, a television role model, like The Saint or James Bond. And by the way, James Bond isn't The Perfect Gentleman, but that's not Mm. how I perceived it when I was like that age. And so they picked up on that, and, and, and decided to call it The Perfect Gentleman. I wasn't gonna argue because I wanted the Americans to publish the book, so yeah. <laughs> that became the default. Term. But actually that's worked out very well because now that I have it fully formulated as a trilogy, mm. then the sequence is The Perfect Gentleman, which is aspirational, The Imperfect Gentleman, which is brutal reality, and The Gentleman, which is kind of a maturing, softening of mm. attitude. So that oh, works nice. out well. Yeah,
0: I just wonder if if you could, if, how long we've got the, the the, if you could tell me a bit about your publishing journey because this is quite extraordinary. And if you can, okay, so yeah, I, I, the, I don't the, think the, I've ever done, done this short potted version.
1: <laughs> the shortest potted version because I literally I could perform this on stage for about three hours. Yes. So here's and I have done uh, in front of your audience. I did half the journey in about it was an evening but then that was only half the journey at that time. So here is the journey as quickly as I can, succinctly as I can. So after 9-11, it became apparent to me that the world had sort of fallen into lazy tribalism, which uh, an us and them attitude, Islam versus the West as very simple tribal entities. And I knew this wasn't true. It wasn't realistic because both the West and Islam exist across a very broad spectrum which overlaps and actually in in, in later in later in the trilogy I, I discussed islam is actually a western religion anyway um because the eastern religions begin around india with buddhism hinduism taoism and so on so islam is actually technically a western religion but anyway this us and them attitude after 9 11 went going both ways and i knew it wasn't an honest representation because i had lived I'd grown up in both worlds. I'd grown up both Muslim and of the West. And I knew it was just wasn't as simple as that. So I knew I could write a book which just demonstrated this, the the complexities, uh, intricacies uh, uh, and so on. And the paradoxes, the contradictions, the hypocrisies and so on. So I wrote a memoir. Using the memoir as a vehicle for social commentary, philosophy, theology, the history of Britain in the latter part of the 20th century, and so on. And I wrote it in a developmental way. So you're actually growing up with the narrator. It's written mm-hmm. in the present tense, within the roughly approximating to the mind, the, the mental capacity of the narrator at that time, to essentially develop with the narrator as he grows up. So that first book covers my life from zero to actually starting at Unilever after um, leaving university. So about zero to 25 years of age. Problem I had was nobody was interested in it uh, because it had nothing. It had no angle of terrorism or abuse as a child or a miserable childhood and so on, because it was an ordinary boy growing up. But it, um, it was very funny though. That's... <laughs> Yes, but the, the, the point was the angle. Oh, no, no, you're yeah. making me sound like you're, you're being me and I'm being the agent <laughs> or the publisher. <laughs> so the trouble was it had no angle. I got rejected by so many agents that I eventually I self-published the book. And I thought the self-published book was going through was going to conquer the world. And I did it through a company called Book Surge that was owned by Amazon. And I wanted to get it into bookstores, so I sent a copy to Scott Pack, who was the head buyer of Waterstones in the UK. And I didn't realise at the time, I didn't know, that apparently Scott Pack was considered the most powerful man in the British publishing industry. I read an article which said that there were thousands of wannabe writers, and they were chasing scores of literary agents, and they were chasing dozens of publishers... And they were chasing Scott Pack because he was the man who decided what books got into Waterstones. Yeah. So I sent him a copy and he kindly did reply and said he, you know, read it if when he got around to it. But of course, I didn't know at the time, because everyone sends their book to Scott Pack and his office is piled with books, piles and piles of books. Everyone sends their book to Scott Pack. Anyway, I was, I was um, selling my, this self-published book through Amazon print on demand and over about seven weeks, I sold about 40 copies. Uh, the, the tragedy was I knew all 40 of those people. <laughs> um, I'd get the sales report, I'd run the sales report and it would show amazon.com or amazon.uk, the time of the order. And I could figure out from the time and day of the order. Oh yes, I know who that is. Cause that person said, oh, they ordered it this weekend. So it was them. So one Friday night I was going to bed and uh, I ran the sales report and it showed the sales of 40 copies over seven weeks. And then it showed that another 50 copies had just sold in the US in the last three hours. Wow, that's incredible. So I figured something must have happened in the US. One of my friends must have got some publicity or something. And that 50 Americans had just bought it. That's fantastic. I went to bed, woke up Saturday morning, ran the sales report, and it showed that in addition to the 40 copies which had sold over seven weeks, 250 copies had sold. (laughs) Uh, in the U.S. through Amazon.com through Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and Friday night. So it was obvious what happened. One of my friends must have got the book. Some publicity in a newspaper, a local television station, radio, something. And 250 Americans have bought it from Amazon.com. So I printed off the sales report, and I drew a big red arrow that showed U.S. media event. You could tell exactly when it happened. <laughs> I didn't know what it was, but you could tell exactly when it happened. When the when the seven when the 40 copies were then superseded by these 250 copies in one evening. So I did this big red arrow US media event and showed the 250 copies had sold that evening. And I printed it off, as I said, I wrote a covering letter, put it in an envelope, and I drove to Scott Pack's office at Waterstones on Sunday night, and I gave it to the security guard, this envelope to the security guard, knowing that when Scott Pack opens it on Monday morning and sees that sales report, he'll definitely check out the book. On Tuesday... Book Surge emailed me to say that due to a computer error, one single order had been caught in a replicating interface loop with their mainframe and had basically generated 250 ghost orders. Um, but not to worry, they'd fixed the problem. That's a very Douglas ran, things thing to happen, actually, isn't it? I know, it's a ghost <laughs> in the machine. It was a ghost in the machine. So I reran the sales report, and the, the 250 orders had just disappeared, leaving just the one original order, which I could see, was my, my friend Lucretia in California. She'd ordered the book, and somehow her PC had got locked into some kind of loop with their mainframe. I, I don't know what happened, but generated 250 orders over the course of an afternoon and evening and a night. Well, I didn't say anything to Mr. (laughs) Scott. And a week and a half later, he wrote back to me saying, well, thanks for the very impressive sales report. He had taken the time to read the book. And he said that he was his honest opinion because he always gave an honest opinion. He thought the cover was terrible and the physical quality of the book, the, 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 the paper, the font, the print, the typesetting was terrible. But the actual content, the writing was really good. And deserved a proper publisher and he said that if i was willing he would send it to a literary agent and and I, I i i said yes of course and um he sent it to a literary agent and that's how i got an agent and that's eventually how i got a proper publisher but even the literary agent had, a, had, had difficulty with all the major publishers because they said there was no angle in terms of it was the muslim story but there was no angle no terrorism no Abuse as a child, uh, no, no miserable upbringing, and so on. That was the problem. And, that, and I said, but that's the whole point. I'm trying to show that it's possible to be Muslim and have a nor, an ordinary life, but you can still get all these insights into the, the internal kind of tension, as it were, between a Western lifestyle and, a, and an Islamic philosophy, and so on, and how you reconcile those. That was the point. That was the angle. But in any case, he did get me a, uh, a UK publisher. And then the, the floodgates seemed to open. It was chosen by Sue Townsend and Anne Whidicom yes. as their favourite book of the year. Now these are these are these women are at opposite ends of the spectrum yeah. in terms of uh, political ideology. I, I couldn't believe it. So Sue Townsend and Whidicom, uh, Philip Pullman wrote a glowing, lengthy review, and it was in the best books of the year of the Guardian. The Independent, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Belfast Telegraph. It was had fantastic reviews. And then I ended up getting to being invited to literary festival. I sent a copy to Catherine Lockerbie uh, 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 of Edinburgh, and she wrote back saying she didn't normally consider unsolicited approaches, but she just loved Unimagined so much. And she invited me to Edinburgh and I had a, a fantastic event. It went really well. And then I was invited, I met Sid, Wendy Weir from Sydney, and I gave her the book. And then Six months later, when she'd read it, she invited me to Sydney and my event went really well. And then I met Janet Deneath of the Ubud Festival in Bali. And after she read the book, she invited me to Bali. And that went brilliantly. And there I met Jenny Caffin of Byron Bay. And she invited me to Byron Bay and I was also invited to Perth. And Jenny recommended me to Isabel who ran Dubai. So I was invited to Dubai. So I had this extraordinary literary festival journey, mm. uh, and, which was priceless. Now, I still wanted an American publisher, and I basically wrote to many publishers in America and eventually got got an imprint of Hachette, Center Street, and then they wanted wanted global rights. By the way, let me restate that. I got Hachette New York City without an agent, and that in itself is extraordinary if you know anything about publishing. Mm. Getting a publisher without an agent, but getting a major publisher without an agent, that Mm. is extraordinary and it was only based on the the manuscript itself. And they wanted global rights, so I had to renegotiate my rights back from everywhere else. I had to buy back the remaining paperback copies, which I gave to my old school. And I had to buy back the remaining Australian copies, which my cousin in Sydney put in in his garage. I I negotiated rights reversions and gave everything to Centre Street of Hachette. And then they, so they had global rights. And and then they changed the name to The Perfect Gentleman. And we got this extraordinary Oprah quote. Yes, you can laugh while having your consciousness raised. This memoir proves it. And that is I couldn't make up a mm. better quote than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was number one. It was in the number one recommended book in that that month in, in Oprah magazine. And the New York books wrote, if you read only one book this year, discover this one which is, i couldn't i couldn't make this stuff up and i got um the most wonderful uh, emails from people including someone from the texas national guard who wrote "Imran, you bastard i was revising for my congress exam but i picked up your book for just a bit now i've read the whole damn thing we have so much in common you could be my twin and and, and so on like that so extraordinary reviews for the hardback so of course it if you understand the publishing industry, you know it's all about the paperback. It's all leading to the paperback. Unfortunately, uh, that particular imprint of uh, Hachette Center Street, before publishing my paperback, decided to go via completely neocon and only publish pro Donald Trump books and uh, uh, neocon type books. So that, so then they never did publish the paperback. And seven years passed, and I've given them all global rights as well, translations and everything. So seven years passed. And I've only recently got the rights back. So in a, in a way, I've gone back to the beginning, except that I have all this extraordinary acclaim and um, the, an Oprah quote that's never been used. So that's where I am right now. And I've, I've written the sequel as well. And I'm, I'm going around um, looking for a publisher again, or an agent, an agent or a publisher. And, but I'm actually quite content because I've had an extraordinary life this mm. last decade. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, and um, and this this thing will unfold in its own time. Yeah, so that's where we are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read the Imperfect Gentleman, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's a very different book, and it's it's,
1: it's, it's the a, imperfect. Gentleman. Yeah, the Imperfect Gentleman. Yeah, that's secret, yes, which yeah. I've done. I've, I've self published that as a, as a proof of concept. Mm. So I'm taking this proof of concept approach. I, a a self published book is never going to be successful like a proper book, it's never going to get reviewed, right. it's never going to get to literary festivals, but i produced it as a proof of concept because mm. I think it's more, it it's, it makes a better impression than just a manuscript on a computer. Right. Yeah. Anyway, you were say...
0: It, I mean, it's, it's very much a what's and all memoir, isn't
1: it? Well, it has to be, otherwise it's, it has no value. But
0: yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because it, it, I guess it's quite a risky thing to do. I mean, you, have you had much and any pushback from the people you've written about or?
1: You mean, uh, no. You're, you're very fair. <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I've, if I've portrayed anyone, if I, anyone who is portrayed negatively, the name has been changed. Mm. Right, So no issue there. The people who've read it, I've had so a few test readers have read it and they've said this, this I can't believe. This is, this is, this may be the writers that that insurmountable obstacle that every writer has. They said it was better than the first book. Mm. And for me, that was extraordinary because I never thought I could write a book that was better than the first book. That's the sequel. That's the challenge of the sequel to make your sequel at least as good as the first book. And, Mm. you know, when the first book has had so much acclaim, it had the sequel has a lot to live up to. And it's it's just so hard to make it as good as the first book. But people have said that the few test readers that have read it have said it was better than the first book which for me is, is very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. And the so third you're... book is, is mm. unfolding now. Mm.
0: I mean, so got... have, have you finished writing that or are you in the middle of that Oh, no
1: no, no, no. No, no, I'm not in any hurry to write the third book, uh, not mm. to complete it anyway. It's it's unfolding, segments, vignettes, and so on are written, but the overall message, I have to be very careful. You can't, so you can't unwrite a sequel. If you get it wrong, you can't wind it back. <laughs> well, Douglas Adams could yeah. probably. He <laughs> could find another medium to to try a different approach. But I'm not in any hurry to complete the third book because what I realised with the second book was if, um, if the first book had been a runaway success 11 years ago, mm. in the case of the US version, or 15 years ago, in the case of the original British version, I would have been under so much pressure to write the sequel back oh, then. you would, yeah. yeah. I would have been under, and, and the sequel I would have written back then would have been so drab compared to the sequel I've been able to write now. So I'm very grateful, actually, that that didn't happen back then, because Mm. I could not have written the sequel that I've written now. In fact, my life would have unfolded differently anyway. Mm. If I'd been reasonably successful as a writer back then in terms of money, then I would have been tempted to give up my work, corporate work, and become a full-time writer. That would be catastrophic. (laughs) That would have been catastrophic. (laughs) But the I needed to be broke, unemployed, and in debt in order to take up the one job I could get after the financial crisis. The one job that was a perfect match for me that I could get was in Malaysia. Mm. And uh, I was reluctant to move to Malaysia, but I thought, well, I'm not really in any position to choose because, as I said, I'm unemployed, broken, in debt, and here's a job that's a perfect match. It just happens to be in Malaysia. Well, I made that move 11 years ago, and I have not looked back the yeah. experiences I've had The learning lessons have been extraordinary, and they have significantly shaped the sequel. Mm. So in the same way, I'm not in any rush to write the third book because I feel that it's still unfolding. I'm still learning. I'm still being shaped. So I'm far from being truly the gentle man, but it is an aspiration Mm. to be the gentle man, one who's not worked up. By minor things, who's not ruled by his ego, and so on. I can see that as a destination, and I'm definitely it's definitely a journey I'm on, but I'm nowhere near the uh, the destination. So let it unfold in its own time. There's no rush.
0: Okay. Have you ever been tempted to write fiction?
1: I don't. F- I find it very difficult to write fiction. So in school, we were required to write fiction. Oh yeah. Here's <laughs> the <His> title <laughs> of a story. and I just struggled. To make up a story now the funny thing is i will i don't think i'll ever have to write fiction because mm-hmm. the experiences i've had i've had so many extraordinary yeah. experiences that i have no shortage of material for writing mm-hmm. narrative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. and th- my life has had so many twists and turns and there's characters popping up in their story arcs covering decades it's such a, uh, such a rich mine of experience that I'll never run out of uh, material to write narrative nonfiction. So I'd, I, I, I'm, there'll n- not be any reason for me to write fiction. And I'm just no good at writing fiction. I just can't make up a story. But it's not, it's not, a, not an issue for me. You know, English exams and the English O-level, they were, they were torture for me. Because you were required to make up a story in a short period of time. Yeah. From, a, cho- from a, a, a choice of titles. And that was just so difficult. It was a strong... I managed to get an A for O-level English. I'd have been so upset if I hadn't got an A. But <laughs> that was the part. The making up a story in a, short, in a short period of time is not something that I can do. I, but writing narrative nonfiction from my experiences, it just flows out. I, I have vivid recollection. And everything, every memory is multidimensional. I can remember what I was thinking, what I was feeling my emotions, and what was shaping my thoughts at that time, I can remember vividly. So I just convey those uh, Mm. completely honestly, and it it seems to work very well.
0: Yeah, well, that certainly comes across, but they are very, very vivid books and uh, extremely entertaining. Right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. So thank you very much indeed for coming along. It's been really fascinating.
1: Oh, I've had a well of a time. Uh, I should have mentioned that I'm in quarantine. I mean, because I just okay. came back from the UK. I came back from the UK a, a few days ago, not not even a week, and I'm in imposed mandatory home quarantine in my apartment. I'm not allowed to step out the door, And I've got this electronic tracking device on my wrist. Mm. So it's been delightful to have someone to speak with. <laughs>
0: Right, well, this place is intended to be free from adverts, as if any would pay to ab- advertise here anyway. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. Imran is on Twitter as at Unimagined, and his website is at unimagined.co.uk. I'm on Twitter as John Pinnock, and my website is at jonathanpinnock.com. This podcast now has its own Twitter account as LitButPod, and DMs are open or email me on bitbuttpod at gmail.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people find out about all the fascinating stuff here. You'll find this podcast all the usual places. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off in order to have a break from reading funny books, but I'll be back before you know it with a whole swathe of exciting guests lined up, including the guy that Imran was talking about before, Scott Pack. So, Oh! Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> on my <laughs> regards Scott Pack! <laughs> I will give you his... I'll give... Uh, I shall pass on your regards to him.
1: I never got (laughs) published without Scott Pack. And the computer, the ghost in the machine.
0: (laughs) Great stuff.